Hey y'all, welcome to this week's episode of Unfit to Print. I'm your host, Amber Athey. I'm the Washington editor for The Spectator and a senior Blankley fellow with the Steamboat Institute. This week, we're covering all of the drama unfolding amongst colleagues at the Washington Post, the start of the January 6th public hearings, AOC endorsing Latinx, and Media Matters is just as terrible as we all thought it was. But before we get started, please take a moment and subscribe to the show on YouTube, Rumble, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. And if you are on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment and give us a five-star review. I'd also like to remind you guys that our tiered subscriber system is now live. You can look at all of the different tiers available by going to amberathy.supercast.com. And for all of our subscribers, our first guest interview is being recorded this week. We're talking to Kenny Shu, who is the author of An Inconvenient Minority, The Attack on Asian American Excellence, and The Fight for Meritocracy. And he's also the president of the group Color Us United. So keep an eye out for that. Please go subscribe if you'd like to listen to the interview with Kenny Shu. And with that, we will go ahead and get right into this week's episode. talk to you guys about today is just a little update on what I have been up to. I was in Dallas, Texas for a few days last week, and I was attending and speaking at the Young Women's Leadership Summit that is hosted by Turning Point USA. And every time I go to a Turning Point event, I'm always so inspired by just how many young people turn out and are excited about conservative ideas. In this case, it was thousands of young women in college and even a few in high school who were accompanied by their parents. And it was just so cool. So I was on a panel during the Friday session of the event with Lauren Chen, who you guys might know, she hosts a show called The Roaming Millennial. And it was moderated by my friend Stephanie Hamill, who I worked with at The Daily Caller and just recently left her show at One America News. And we talked about how the media lies to and about women. And a huge part of our conversation was, of course, about the takeover of women's sports by biological men and the insistence by the media that biological men can be women. In fact, there are several media outlets whose style guides tell their reporters that they're not even allowed to say phrases like, so-and-so identifies as a woman, because if you say they identify as a woman, then you're implying that they aren't actually a woman. So there's a lot of doublespeak going on with the media now. And I also think another big lie that the media tells to young women, in particular millennials, because this was something I heard a lot growing up in school and, and by female leaders even, was that you could only really be empowered if you chased a career. There was no sense of the word empowerment or success or happiness being tied to things like family and motherhood. And that does such a disservice to women. And we've seen higher levels of mental health issues among young women than ever before. They're actually growing at a faster rate than that of men, even though men are still more likely to have mental health issues and be suicidal. The rate of that for women is growing a lot faster. So that's really distressing to me. And I just want, I wanted young women to hear the message from the three of us on that panel that it's okay to aspire to be a family-oriented woman and you don't have to be a CEO of some mega corporation to feel like you have accomplished something great or that financial success is the only form of success. 
The media often tells women, too, that in order to be successful, they have to act like a man. They have to be sexually promiscuous. They have to be career chasers. They have to prioritize other things over family. They have to be working long hours. They have to be crass and bossy and rude. And these are not natural feminine traits. There's a reason that God created man and woman to have these different innate biological characteristics and it's so we can complement each other using those strengths that were given to us by God. So I hope that the young women at the YWLS appreciated our panel. I hope that they learned something from it, but I really enjoyed being there. I love being in Dallas, Texas. I mean, pretty much anywhere other than DC is usually an improvement. Uh, the people are always so much nicer and it's so refreshing. Um, but shout out to Turning Point USA for having me at the YWLS. I had a great time and I hope to be back again next year. Water is wet, the sky is blue, and liberal media journos still have zero sense of humor. Dave Weigel with the Washington Post was suspended for a month this week after he retweeted the following so-called sexist joke. Every girl is bi. You just have to figure out if it's polar or sexual. That is hilarious, but Dave Weigel's colleagues didn't like it too much. In fact, one colleague in particular, Felicia Sanmez, decided to chastise him not only internally, but also on her public Twitter account. She tweeted a screenshot of Dave Weigel's retweet saying, Fantastic to work at a news outlet where retweets like this are allowed! Exclamation point. Um, yes, I would think it would be fantastic to work at a place where a sense of humor is valued and people are offered the opportunity to free speech, but Felicia Sanmez apparently does not believe in that. Dave Weigel deleted the retweet and actually issued an apology. He said, I just removed a retweet of an offensive joke. I apologize and did not mean to cause any harm. But his apology didn't do him any favors because it never does with the woke mob and he was suspended for a month. The Washington Post actually sent a statement saying editors have made clear to the staff that the tweet was reprehensible and demanding language or actions like that will not be tolerated. So Dave Weigel has fallen afoul of the woke mob. Felicia Sanmez held the sword. And this is a very interesting tale because news outlets, first of all, have been really incentivizing this type of public call-out behavior for quite some time now. You guys might remember the internal and external New York Times newsroom revolt over a Tom Cotton op-ed that called for sending in the National Guard to help quell the 2020 summer of riots. In that case, the New York Times staff were upset about the op-ed, so they decided to copy and paste a message on their social media accounts claiming that the Tom Cotton op-ed was going to put New York Times Black staffers' lives in danger. They were actually killing Black staffers by publishing the Tom Cotton op-ed, and the backlash was so great from a bunch of these editors and reporters that the New York Times apologized for the op-ed. It still has an editor's note on the top of it, and they pushed out the editors who were responsible for publishing it in the first place. So the New York Times and other media outlets, by giving in to this type of behavior, have demonstrated that if their employees tarnish their reputation publicly, call out their colleagues, and basically just give them a bunch of negative PR, they will do whatever the woke mob wants them to do. So Felicia Sanmez clearly learned from this lesson and decided that going to the Human Resources Department or talking to her managers like a normal person 
wasn't going to get her the desired results as quickly as she would like. So she went ahead and tweeted this out and publicly shamed her own colleague. In any other industry, this would be totally unacceptable, totally unprofessional, and would result in you getting shit canned. I mean, that's the bottom line. I can't think of another industry where you can actually publicly tarnish your employer and still have a job at the end of the day. But there's something additional about this case in particular that is really interesting and helps explain why Felicia Sanmez feels empowered to do this. A little while ago, I think it was a couple of years ago now, Felicia, Felicia Sanmez was told by the Washington Post that she could no longer cover stories about sexual misconduct. The reason why is that Felicia Sanmez had publicly identified as a victim of sexual misconduct and had sent several tweets in the interim basically endorsing the Me Too movement and uh, talking about sexual misconduct in a way that suggested that she couldn't cover the issue objectively and maybe was not a big fan of things like due process. She, in particular, sent a tweet after Kobe Bryant was killed in a helicopter crash, reminding everyone that he was an accused rapist. She actually almost uh, accused him of rape and said that he was a rapist, even though he has never been convicted of rape or any other uh, instances of sexual misconduct. So the Washington Post said, hey, we can't have you tweeting this stuff and also, you know, covering sexual misconduct because it could give the perception to our readers that you are not an unbiased reporter. And she was uh, actually suspended for that Kobe Bryant tweet as well. What's interesting, and I'll point this out right now, is that Dave Weigel at the time signed a letter supporting Felicia Sanmez against the Washington Post when they suspended her for that Kobe Bryant tweet. So it's pretty hilarious that he uh, came to her defense at that time, and then she went around, turned around, threw him under the bus when he tweeted something that she didn't like. But Felicia Sanmez was pulled off of the sexual misconduct beat, and she eventually went public with this information, received a bunch of support from other media members who claimed that the Washington Post was unfairly discriminating against her as a survivor and as a woman. So she went ahead and sued the Washington Post, and her lawsuit was recently thrown out by a judge who said that media outlets are absolutely within their rights to pull people off of certain beats if they feel that there could be the perception of bias involved if that reporter is allowed to cover those stories. Felicia Sanmez is currently appealing the case, and here's the problem. If the Washington Post were to tell Felicia Sanmez, you can't publicly criticize your employer, you can't publicly criticize your colleague, we are suspending you, firing you, whatever, that could be legally viewed as retaliation for the lawsuit. Felicia Sanmez feels comfortable publicly shaming Dave Weigel and her employer because she knows she's untouchable. So long as this lawsuit is in the works and she is an employee of the Washington Post, they can't do anything to her because they don't want the legal entanglement that could be caused by appearing to be retributive to her because of this lawsuit that she has filed against them. So not only have media outlets incentivized the mob-like behavior of going public and publicly shaming their employer, but Felicia Sanmez in particular has an even greater incentive to bring attention to concerns that she has publicly because she has this lawsuit and therefore can't be touched by management at the Washington Post. And yet somehow Felicia Sanmez is still the victim in all of this. 
She is actually the person who holds the most power because she can't be disciplined. And anything that she says publicly is going to be supported by her media colleagues because they all are terrified of criticizing her because of her public identification as a victim of sexual assault, sort of like AOC tried to uh, skirt any criticism over her claims on the January 6th riot because she was re-traumatized by a past sexual assault. Uh, so Felicia Sodmez is is absolutely the most powerful person in this scenario, right? She's more powerful than her bosses, certainly more powerful than Dave Weigel. And yet Dave Weigel is somehow viewed as the oppressor in this situation and Felicia Sanmez the victim. It's really the latest example of how the progressive left warps the idea of marginalized classes and they only give that status to people who in reality actually have all of the cards and can control the narrative and reality in whatever way they want because they're the ones who hold all of the power. What's especially hilarious about this whole saga is this is apparently the first week for Washington Post interns to start their summer internship. And a bunch of Washington Post reporters had the gall to tweet about what a great work environment they have. And several of them actually used the term collegial to describe the Washington Post culture. Right. Collegial. The televised January 6th hearings start this week, and we didn't really need any more evidence that this was all a sham intended to be political theater, because when this committee was first created, Nancy Pelosi had veto power over any Republicans that would be included on the committee. So the only two who are on there, if you even count them as Republicans, are Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, because they're the only idiots dumb enough to play along with Nancy Pelosi's game. And we also knew that Republicans weren't going to have subpoena power, even if they were allowed on the committee. So we wouldn't be able to investigate a whole host of other issues, such as the shooting of Ashley Babbitt, why Capitol Police officers were holding doors open for protesters that day, why the National Guard wasn't called in if the FBI had received threats that the Capitol could become a place where a riot broke out. And really the list goes on and on of all of the other issues that I think would be fundamentally more interesting to the American people than trying to claim that Trump was behind an insurrection. But here we are. We are now moving into the televised portion of this because apparently just the committee itself was not enough to drum up uh, interest among the American people, which is not surprising because when gas prices are hitting $5 a gallon, when there's a baby formula shortage, when you have supply chain issues, when you have your southern border being overrun, when you're trying to get the U.S. involved in a war with Ukraine, it turns out that uh, a bunch of people trespassing into the nation's capital doesn't really seem like that big of a deal to the American people. And of course, when you contrast that with the way the media talked about the 2020 summer of riots, it's all very obviously meant to create this narrative that Republicans are violent and domestic terrorists. And anyone who's associated with Trump is a white nationalist domestic terrorist. And therefore, these people need to be shunned from society. But now that we're heading into this televised portion, the Democrats have made it more clear than ever that this is all meant to evoke emotion from the American people. This is meant to make them uh, feel like these Capitol Police officers were the victim of this violent mob that was encouraged by the president of the United States, who's a fascist authoritarian. So a couple of headlines from this uh, televised hearing that the first one is going to be primetime Thursday. The New York Times is talking about how these hearings can help Democrats, quote, recast their midterm message. So clearly this is being used as political fodder because Republicans are 
are clear to sweep both the House and the Senate in the midterms, and the Democrats are grasping for some other issue that they can use to turn the, the electorate. NBC's Yumish Alcindor, who also is with PBS and therefore gets paid with your tax dollars, said that Democrats need to, quote, make people care more about January 6th because they're too focused on things like inflation and the economy. And CNN hosts are thrilled at a former ABC News president advising the January 6th committee saying, quote, they brought in an expert. Now, on that issue, there is a former ABC News president who has joined the January 6th committee, and he is going to be helping them with the production of the primetime hearings. And this guy uh, is James Goldston. And interestingly enough, he was the president of ABC News when the media outlet decided to quash a story about Jeffrey Epstein. There was a reporter who blew the whistle on them who said that she was prepared to interview one of Jeffrey Epstein's accusers, Virginia Goofrey, who ended up testifying in court. But the uh, media outlet decided to tell her that she wasn't allowed to do that. She wasn't allowed to talk to Virginia and she shouldn't be covering the Jeffrey Epstein story. So James Goldston was the president of the organization at the time. He was apparently helping to cover for Jeffrey Epstein and a confirmed child predator and child trafficker. But now he is going to be helping the Democrats with the production of their January 6th hearing. He is now going to be helping the Democrats with their January 6th hearing. So really stellar choice by the Democrats. But again, we know what they're doing. They are trying to simply tie anyone who supports Trump or Republicans to domestic terrorism. And in fact, they are already warning that Republicans are going to do this again during the midterms. A Democrat, Steve Cohen, who was a member of the Judiciary Committee, claimed that we should expect violence heading up to the midterm elections. Watch this clip. I, I wonder, for folks watching at home now, should they be concerned that these midterms coming up might be marred by violence? We all should be concerned about the midterms being harmed, and all public officials should be concerned about their own safety, I fear. Uh, Jonathan Martin, our friend who wrote uh, This Shall Not Pass, makes that clear in his book that this is something that is a continuing part of American government, American politics. The, the big lie continues, the fealty yeah. to Trump continues, and the encouragement to the white supremacist and the terrorists to, to be involved continues. It makes zero sense why Republicans would riot during the midterms, considering they're expected to win. Uh, but this is what the left does. Steve Cohen throws out this accusation and this warning. The leftists leaked that draft opinion from the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade. We have these January 6th televised hearings, and all of it is intended to fearmonger because the Democrats don't really have any ideas. They don't have any good policies. Under Biden, the country has gone to tatters. And so they have to come up with something else. And in this case, it is blaming Republicans for every bout of political violence and claiming that we should all be scared of the political right because they're allegedly going to riot across the country. Uh, but these televised hearings, these January 6 hearings, the American people tuned out of this stuff a year and a half ago. They're so over this. This was so 2020. And these televised hearings are going to end up getting ratings that are comparable to CNN+. Plus. I wouldn't be surprised if they last for a week or two. And eventually Democrats just give up because nobody cares. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has officially endorsed the term Latinx, the so-called more inclusive way of saying Latino or Latina, 
by claiming that people are creating unnecessary drama when they express opposition to the term. Watch. I wanted to have a note on gender inclusivity in Spanish language. People sometimes like to make a lot of drama over the term Latinx. Gender is fluid, language is fluid. There are some politicians, including Democratic politicians, that rail against the term Latinx. And they're like, this is so bad, this is so bad for the party, like blah, blah, blah. AOC went on to say that Democrats who are afraid of using Latinx because it could hurt their reelection prospects are selfish and they should use the term because it's about inclusivity and gender fluidity. And like, it's almost as though it has not struck some of these folks that another person's identity is not about your re-election prospects. Like, this is not about you. AOC, I hate to say it, but you are correct. This is not about you. And the vast majority of Hispanics do not like the term Latinx. And in fact, 30% of them say it would make them less likely to vote for a politician if they use the term. Why? Only 2% of Hispanics actually want to use the term Latinx because they cherish the tradition of their language. And it also turns out a bunch of Hispanics don't believe this gender fluidity nonsense. They believe rightfully, as is guided by science, that there are two genders, male and female. And the more that progressives try to harp on this as an issue, the less attention they're giving to the issues that actually matter to not just Hispanic voters, but all voters. But this is classic AOC. AOC is someone who virtue signals. She claims to care about the little guy, but focuses on exactly the wrong issues because she is ultimately a very privileged person. She lives in a luxury high-rise apartment. She drives a Tesla. Her boyfriend has this really successful business. Oh, sorry, fiance now. Her fiance has a very successful business. And so she's lost touch with the voters in her district and just puts all of her attention on these really minor issues. In this case, one that is not even supported by the community that she is claiming to represent. It's so absolutely nutty and just classic progressive left where they go all in on this woke nonsense and ignore issues that actually matter to voters. Well, we all know that Media Matters is an absolute trash heap of an organization. Uh, some of you guys might remember that they have tried to cancel me a number of times. The first time was when they went after me for some high school tweets that I had sent to my boyfriend at the time. They took them totally out of context, made them out to be something that they weren't. And to this day, I still face professional and personal repercussions because of their reporting. And it turns out the guy who was actually responsible for going after me, Timothy Johnson, has been fired by Media Matters. And the reason why and his response to it is pretty fascinating. So... Timothy Johnson went on this tweet thread on Monday announcing that he had officially left Media Matters after about 10 years. He went on to say that he wouldn't accept a recommendation letter from his bosses at Media Matters because he had a bit of a bone to pick with them. Specifically, he accused one of the editors of covering up for a sexual predator. So in this tweet thread, Johnson says, that his editorial director, Ben DiMiero, knew for years that a male staffer was engaging in sexual misconduct, but did nothing to stop him. He said, quote, this man suddenly resigned, and to my shame, I went out with him after work that day, and we all got really drunk. He told me a sob story, I bought it, and the night ended with him being carried up to his apartment. Not too long later, I learned the truth of why he, quote, resigned. 
He was dismissed because of his sexual misconduct, but only after years of people in authority positions knowing about what he was doing. I think it's one pretty interesting that it took Timothy Johnson 10 years to figure out that he's working for a scumbag organization. I mean, I tend to think that a company dedicated to using out-of-context quotes and spurious accusations and old tweets to try to destroy people's livelihoods so long as they're political enemies is probably not a place of great virtue. Uh, but I guess I applaud him for sharing this publicly uh, and trying to take down his former bosses if they are in fact bad people. And if we're using the media matter, matter standard of proof, which is basically... If I don't like you, then everything bad I hear about you is 100% accurate. Then this editorial director guy is obviously 100% guilty of covering up for this sexual predator. And I don't think any of us would be surprised if this did turn out to be true. But then Media Matters decided to actually respond to Timothy Johnson's claims by sending him a cease and desist letter. And in this cease and desist letter, they claim that Timothy Johnson was actually fired from Media Matters because he had abandoned work shifts without following Media Matters' notice procedures. And he also had, quote, insubordinate and bullying communications directed toward your coworkers. I certainly will not be crying about Timothy Johnson being fired from Media Matters. Again, <laughs> not exactly his biggest fan, considering he tried to destroy my career. Uh, but what's interesting um, here is that Media Matters is also being represented by the Elias Law Group, which is founded by Mark Elias, who was one of the Russiagate orchestrators. He was one of those lawyers with Perkins Coie, the law firm that helped spread the false Russia accusations against Donald Trump amongst the media and the FBI. So Media Matters and Mark Elias are going after this former David Brock minion who's been there for 10 years and helped destroy a bunch of conservative media figures because he is now calling them out for alleged sexual misconduct. So all around, this is just like a drama-filled nightmare for Media Matters. Obviously it makes them look horrible and not surprising, again, because an organization that routinely tries to destroy people and ruin their ability to support themselves and cause them professional and personal consequences over ridiculous, inconsequential stuff is not a good organization. And of course, it's going to be filled with scumbags who do things like cover for sexual predators. Or uh, if you go back and read a Daily Caller article about David Brock, he apparently had really nutty behavior in the office and made people really uncomfortable. But Timothy Johnson seems to be going for some type of mea culpa here. Somebody asked him in this Twitter thread, why would you work at such a garbage place for 10 years? Do you have no principles, ethics, morals? And Timothy Johnson replied, Comments like this have a point. I thought I did, but apparently not. Something I need to change. I hope that this is actually the wake-up call that Timothy Johnson needed. I, unlike Media Matters, believe that people can change. I believe in the power of forgiveness. I believe in growth. And if this is his way of realizing that his coming after me and other conservative people was wrong and unjust, then I welcome that and I hope he learns from this. But in the meantime, Media Matters is still operating and I also believe in justice and I hope that Media Matters gets all that's coming to them. And if Timothy Johnson wants to help bring them down, then more power to him. Thank you guys so much for watching this week's episode of Unfit to Print. As always, if you're a fan of the show, please subscribe on YouTube, Rumble, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. 
And if you would like to be able to watch my exclusive interview with Kenny Shu coming later this week, then please access our tiered subscriber system at amberathy.supercast.com. And in the meantime, we will see you next week. Thanks for watching.